I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hacks, greeting you for a glorious day of quarantine in Poland. Tell me, Alex, who do we have on today? Uh, well, so we're going to relieve the Sunday boredom a bit um, because we have uh, we have the fabulous Dan Jones with us today um, talking medieval history. This is the first time we've had medieval history on, um, which is awesome. Uh, Dan, how are you doing? How am I doing? Yeah. Oh, I'm fine. I love house. I've been <laughs> waiting all my life. Like, I, thought, I thought this would happen because I'd committed like a minor, well, like a mid- grade crime where uh, I didn't necessarily even go to open prison but had an ankle tag and I thought this would that would be the, what caused house arrest but it turns out it's um, just a massive willingness to be incarcerated by the government that got to me first. And also as well uh, you're the first person we've spoken to aren't you dealing with the whole homeschooling thing? Oh I mean it's amazing so my kids like this is the last week of of school before Easter holiday so they're due to break up on Friday we're now talking on Wednesday uh if I, I'm sorry if that blowing your no um, your, no, your I th- cover. no we're good, good. <laughs> uh, so so now Wednesday and this, so this is the last week of term and the school I think quite sensibly or at least I thought quite sensibly said the school building is closed but school is still open so they're sending a full like day's work for each child each day and it goes up it's uploaded in the morning and like you look at it and go, oh shit! Like this is this is like six lessons, and I've got two children. I mean, that you can do the math. So I'm teaching year three and year six from eight fifty in the morning until uh, three thirty in the afternoon. I've just done three days of it, and honestly, I think it's um, I think it's the three most honest days, like hard days work I've ever done. It sounds like yeah. I. I would be pretty sure that they wouldn't expect that much of you and that you could like fling a textbook at your kid. And as long as they kind of did some reading, then that would be adequate. But it seems like they've pretty much just made you their official teacher. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of they've made me and a little bit of I'm definitely up for it. I mean, I, I, so to put it into context, I am wearing my undergraduate gown uh, during all lessons, like <laughs> Mr. Felt from the Billy Bunker rooms. I'm not even joking. I've told a bunch of people this and they all like, ha ha. And then they see the photo and they're like, wait, you're, you're actually doing that? Yeah, damn right I'm doing it. And then I, I put it on the beginning of the lesson. I take it off afterwards. We're working in the kitchen, but it adds an element of formality and, 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 and scholarship, I think, to, to the interaction. So, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at, at the moment. Two more days of it. And then they've got 
nearly a month off for Easter, so um, I'm free to ignore them again as usual. Oh, that well, we've let's get you away from um, from primary school in for a while, because um, we've had people sending us in questions for you. Um, the first one's really good. Someone, Sammy, has sent in basically wants you to do like a mini award ceremony for medieval women. So, um, if you could announce your winners, um, first of all, Sammy wants to know who's the most interesting medieval woman you found. Um. The one I've been, I, I, I'm really into at the moment, um, as long dead women go, is uh, there's a character, so my, the book I've got, was just coming out in paperback that, that came out last autumn, was called Crusaders. It's all about the Crusades, as the name suggests, or rather the people who, who took part in the Crusades. And my favourite character from that, apologies to anyone who came to any of the shows in the autumn, but they'll, so they know this already, but my favourite character is Margaret of Beverly, who... Um, it was a Yorkshire lass who went to Jerusalem at the wrong time and got caught up in Jerusalem when um, Saladin's Ayyubid army was outside. And uh, she was fighting Saladin's army from the walls of Jerusalem with a slingshot, throwing rocks, wearing a saucepan on her head as a helmet. And then she was, you know, long story short, she, she survived the siege of Jerusalem in 1187, was subsequently... Uh, uh, enslaved for about 18 months, 15 months in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, survived that, wandered around the Kingdom of Jerusalem took, during the Third Crusade when Richard the Lionheart was about, survived all that, and then made it back to Europe. And her, she's a real like swashbuckling story that was later written up um, to make her sound, as a sort of hagiography, to make her sound saintly. But it's just a brilliant story. And she's, she's great because um, she's just so counter... Uh, intuitive when you think of the crusades you think it's a bit sort of it's just sort of dick waving really mm. and um sorry sorry to write off an entire sub, sub <laughs> dick waving really uh it's, it's a little bit more than that um but it's, it's definitely generally it's very macho so to find a woman involved who's not only just sort of there kind of swooning while all the men did the fighting but actually right in the thick of it that was great and i i've really enjoyed sort of working with her life story. Uh, and that's fantastic. So Joan of Arc, for, for those two reasons, is probably my favourite. I'm scarred by her permanently. I do, you know when you do that Camp America thing? Um, Joan of Arc has, like, I have nightmares about her because I did that Camp America thing and I got put at this remote little nutty camp named after her in the Adirondacks. Um, and we would have to like, um, plug the story of Joan of Arc every day as a bedtime story except we had to rewrite the end and at the end I can't, it was something mad like she was supposed to have survived and lived happily ever after in the Adirondacks but she didn't end up getting burnt anyway um, so I literally had 12 weeks of just wow. being bludgeoned with Joan of Arc um, but it, it, was, uh, it was quite surreal but um, I still reckon she's a good choice that's mental I know like, what are you doing I just uh, now I realise I was being paid two cents an hour to look after rich people's children, and I was being exploited, um, and I was basically being held hostage in the Adirondacks. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea because they gave you quite a big visa on the end of it. Yeah, fair enough. What's the next <laughs> question? <laughs> um, yeah, your least favourite one. My least favourite woman. Yeah, medieval yeah. woman. Medieval reminds me, not us. It feels harsh to do this, doesn't it? Um, who's my least favourite medieval woman? Um, 
don't know. Let's go, 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 do another one and I'll come back to that. I, I, I find it funny, very uncharitable to say they don't do this at the Oscars, do they? They don't say, no. um, right, best actor goes to Joaquin Phoenix, like shittest, most sort of annoying actor goes to Jake Gyllenhaal. I'd so, probably um, watch it though if they did do that category. Oh no, yeah, but they I mean, what they did used to do separately was the Razzies, wasn't it? Do they, is it too, is it too non woke to do that now? I just think it's fucking mean. It is. It? it is pretty mean. Let's move on from that one. If you think of someone you hate at any point in this interview, we'll go back to it. Yeah. But uh, category four. Yeah. 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 Of people I'm interested in who have lived in the Middle Ages and are women, and people I hate, and they're both very full, but they don't weirdly intersect that much. Anyway. <laughs> With Piers Morgan, a, a medieval woman? Yes, for this no. purposes. Well, it's pretty old. Okay, uh, let's not get into him. <laughs> let's go with number... Sammy's last category. I like the best, actually. He said, um, your favourite medieval woman, um, underrated or given a bad press, and why? Underrated or given a bad press, and why? Well, I'll tell you who's given a bad press. is uh, old... Um, uh, Margaret Beaufort, Henry VII's mother, um, because, as, as I'm sure you're aware, the one subject in the Middle Ages that people are most interested, m- generally most interested, in, is Richard the story of Richard III, Prince in the Tower. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get the sort of people who are sensibly interested in this as a historical topic of inquiry, and then you get the sort of raving mad people for whom this is their life's consuming passion. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a subset of those people who are, you know, pro-Richard, because it's, you know, you, there are tribes and squads and teams. They're pro-Richard, and they'll go, it was all Margaret Beaufort, she killed the prince of the tower, it's obvious. And you go, and when you drill down into the evidence for wh- why they believe it, it's usually it's a Philippa Gregory novel. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, that's <laughs> it, that is why they And, um... And I think it's fair, it's unfair, it's unfair on Margaret Beaufort. Uh, just because, I mean, what we know of her life, she was sort of really quite impressive. And um, from being a sort of 13-year-old mother uh, through to the kind of matriarch and, uh, and dawn of the, the early Tudors. Um, and I think so. so she's, fair, she's unfairly maligned. But, you know, I, even as I'm saying this, my heart is sinking because I just, I, all, I, I made a vow to myself quite a few years ago to stop talking about this stuff because yeah. it just made, like, there's, there's gangs of people who hate me just oh, for saying Own it. Is, it. is it probably um, includes that mad woman who tried to crawl on the table with the bones when they did the Richard III documentary? I do, the only thing I re, the main thing I remember is that she was trying to cover the box in the Royal Standard when they dug it up, and someone was was just not having it because there was no evidence. There was no historical evidence that they had dug anyone important up. You know, Steve Coogan is making a movie about that. I have a feeling that might be quite entertaining. Uh, yes, I have a feeling it might be as well, um, but probably not in the way that you think. Uh, yeah, no, it's um, yes, Stephen Coogan, Steve Coogan, and Jeff Pope have written it. Uh, sorry, I'm just saying, uh, I'm not 
no it's i mean so is he is he going for the whole um like is he is he attack, like approaching it quite sensibly or are they actually just having a, a riot about I don't the whole concept? I don't. um i just think it's interesting that 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 went from a um i mean that was an amazing document i mean so there was an amazing thing full stop it was um and between richard iii's remains being found tested and um certified his and game of thrones becoming a sort of worldwide phenomenon i mean th those two things which which kind of happened around the same time it was like 2013 wasn't it 2013 14 the richard the third stuff was going on yeah. and that was like by that by that time we were into season two three four of game of thrones and it just started to break out of like the nerd sphere into the uh, stratosphere and the two things did like unbelievable wonders for medieval history in the sort of popular mindset and in a sense, I, I'm loath to have a go at um, anything to do with Richard III's bones being found because ultimately I, I may owe a section, if not a large section, of all my career to it. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm maybe I've... It's one of those things, isn't it, where you think, um, yeah, the, you look at it and you think, oh, oh my God, oh dear God, as a historian, but also uh, it's bringing history and medieval history to people who usually wouldn't even bother with it. So it's expanding the field and it's yeah, making... And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really not um, any more snobby at all about what people are interested in. I just think, like, it's a hard sell, full stop. And if people are interested, you know, when the BBC History magazine do their Hot 100 Dead People Awards every year, and it's always Richard III, uh, Elizabeth I, Anne Boleyn, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Jesus, Hitler, um, Jimmy Savile, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It is. <laughs> and probably um, David Beckham for like, some godfather. Well, no, I don't think it's Anyway, um, I'd like, I used. I think, you know, years ago, oh, God, why can't people just be more interested in Margaret of Beverly, for God's sake? Like, it, it's fine. You know, there are things people are interested in um, that market, and, and, and let's not be too snobby about it, and let's not try to complain that, why can't I just be interested in the one thing I've been interested in all my life? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work that way around. Yeah, I think Alina um, has been dying to ask you a question which would fit in quite nicely here. Well, ask. Um, yeah, so I'm actually, I've never had the chance to ask because I've come to like loads of your talks and Chalk Valley and whatever in the past. Um, also because my friends are like massive fans, by the way, just so you know. Um, <laughs> I want to well, know you're actually. Always the, you're always with a massive fan friend every time I see you. Oh God, I know, I know. And I'm going to make sure she listens to this so she hears you saying that. <laughs> Not this girl. Um, no, it's a good thing. It's a it's a really good. She she teaches me some stuff about medieval history. So um, and so do you actually. But I actually want to know why did you choose medieval history over like the hundreds of other possibilities? Um, well, it's it's a story that um, I don't know if it reflects very well on me. But this is this is it. Um, I was. Eight, no, 17, and I was, uh, I'd just finished school and I'd done my A-levels and I'd been offered a place to read history at Cambridge and they send you a form just towards the end of your upper sixth year from, you know, the college, Pembroke College, my college in Cambridge, send you a form saying, dear person coming up to be an undergraduate and read part one of Tripos, 
what do you want to study? Because I don't know if it's still true now, but part one of Tripos, you could choose anything. Uh, with, so long as you did a paper that was political and economic, a paper that was social and cultural, a paper that was before 1750, and a paper that was after 1750. Well, you could satisfy all that in two papers. So uh, out of five. So I, they said, well, what do you want to choose? You've got the whole of the history faculty to choose from. We'll find you a supervisor. Anyway, so I went to my... All in, in school, all I'd study was Tudors and Nazis. Um, I know, you know, that's uh, like a cliche now, but it's true. I've just, I've just done Tudors and Nazis over and over and over again. So I went to Mr. Green, my history teacher, and I said, Mr. Green, look, all I've done is Tudors and Nazis, and they want me to choose what I should study. What, what shall I put on this form? And I was going to listen. I'm 17. It was the summer, and I was quite eager to get down the park with my mates and, um, and drink lager out of tins, a feeling I'm, I'm getting every day now, right now. <laughs> and... Um, so I said, Mr. Green, what should I put on the form? What should I study? And he went, oh, I don't know. Um, what about medieval? Well, that'll do. So I just ticked the medieval box and sent it back to college. Um, and that was that. And so and I got to Pembroke in 19, this is October 1999. John Parry, who's my director of studies, said, oh, right. So you want to study medieval history? I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I really do. So he sent me, he said, right, I've got your supervisor. So he sent me to Helen Castor, who's at Sydney Sussex College then. Oh, and she was brilliant. And that was so, so total chance. And then, of course, you know, I stuck with it because I had brilliant teachers, Helen Castor, Christine Carpenter, Richard Partington. There was a brilliant um, medieval faculty, uh, sort of, you know, medieval little sort of group within the history faculty at Cambridge at that time. And I, I just kind of dug it, you know, and stuck with it. I'm, I'm, uh, we are hoping to get Helen Castor on here, actually. Um, we're somewhere in a couple of weeks' time, we're hoping to interview her. Um, but I'm, I'm always stunned by like the breadth of the stuff you've covered, because to just go, yeah, medieval. I mean, you're covering like not only like Tudor stuff, but all the way back through Plantagenets and stuff, and you're doing Wars of the Roses. Like anyone else would maybe do like, a, they would focus on one of those. So, it, I mean, it's always impressed me that you've done... Um, so so much across the whole span but what have you got a favorite part um no i mean my favorite part really is um the sort of venturing into new territory and and it's as i've gone on i mean i could have there's a point when i've written you know the peasants revolt book plantagenets wars of the roses and a little book about magna carta where i could have gone well now i'll just knock off a load of biographies of every medieval king effectively and stuck you know within that lane and that would have been fine um i'd have been bored you know i, I get the i get my satisfaction i think i'm probably i'm, I'm best at uh, taking on big subjects and um making sense of them for a sort of lay readership yeah, that's something uh, I really admire you for, actually, the fact that you can do that. I mean, my favourite's Hollow Crown, because I, I just like, I keep banging on about it to anyone who will listen, um, because you yeah. didn't do Tudors, and you didn't do Wars of the Roses, but you show people how the two link together, and it's genius, and I can't believe no one thought well, of it before. Um, but that's my well, personal favourite. That's very I quite fun. enjoy your... Um, sorry. Go on. Oh, no, I was going to say, I was, I was, I've just started watching your Castles programme, because it's come up on the Polish Netflix yeah so um i've spent literally the past two hours binge watching you on tv you're starting to creep him out now alina first of all you're stalking and now you're like binge watching him on netflix (laughs) well no because i wanted to prepare myself for something interesting to actually contribute into the conversation because um obviously i i'm in 20th century post world war one 
stuff and um it's actually really interesting there's some really great i mean you 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 cover so much history from like it's it's incredible like a thousand literally a thousand years of history it's amazing we are well, complete no, I mean, fangirls sorry no, kind of you and I, I like i genuinely appreciate it. i don't i don't i find it difficult to take compliments um not difficult to take money yes it's difficult to take compliments um <laughs> Uh, but so, but thank you. Um, look, he, I, I just worked out, I've been doing this for quite a while now and I've worked out what I'm good at. And what I'm good at is telling um, big narrative and that focuses on um, immediacy, on breadth, on the kind of epic. I would do very bad. I don't have a PhD. I, would, I, would, I don't think I'd have enjoyed doing a PhD. I don't um, dig, you know, the granular um i i i I like big stuff big ideas big thoughts um fun uh hyperbole you know that these are currencies i trade in i think what um the important thing for alina and i is you your stuff is complete escapism from us so i'm world war one two uh world war one the only thing i'm good at is making people cry um and same with her she does holocaust studies so when we get stuck into your books it's not something we're ever going to study or research ourselves we can just fully enjoy it basically well, I'm glad, I'm glad you do. But I, I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, in generations past, historians didn't, didn't uh, obsess with this kind of stay in your lane mentality and that there was something about, you know, having the, the toolbox of being a historian and then you could, you could rove around and you could go and attack. A, you know, think of Barbara Tuchman. Or Tuchman, I still don't know how to say her name. You know, writing those two amazing books, Guns of August. Love it. And the and distant mirror, right? Mm. First World War in the 14th century, and of course, you know what she emphasises certainly the distant mirror um, is the, the sort of latent similarities between a catastrophic 14th century and a catastrophic 20th century. Um, but that you know she had the um, or didn't see anything strange in saying I'm an intelligent uh, trained historian. I'm going to go and look at the 14th century. I'm an intelligent trained historian. I'm going to look at the 20th century. That did not strike her as uh, odd or heretical or blasphemous or whatever. And why should it? You know, you know, we need, there is something that you can bring to a period by having a, you know, a, a fresh pair of eyes. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a new book at the moment, which starts in 410. And so I've just had to kind of cram on uh, ancient Rome. Now you're talking to Mary Beard or maybe have spoken to Mary Beard. Tomorrow um, morning, but yeah. Right. Say hello to her. I, I love Mary. She's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Uh, I'm I, so I excited. I her in, in Jaipur um, at the Literary Festival, January before the one just gone. She's amazing. She's amazing. She's one of my like historical heroes, and um, and so down to earth and so brilliant and uh, and so academic, but also so sort of so engaging to a popular audience. Well, she's fantastic. Anyway, she spent her entire career on Rome, right? And I've I spent about, you know, six months doing the background for this new book. So, um, you know, I'm never going to be an expert on ancient Rome. But I think, you know, if I come to it from the perspective of a medievalist, then I'll be able to have the right kind of context to know what I'm looking for, to begin a big story about the Middle Ages in ancient Rome. And I don't, and that doesn't sort of terrify me. I'm not plagued by... Um, by kind of silent hours of 
uh, you know, worrying about my own charlatanism in the middle of the night. I'll leave that to other people. Do you know what I mean? I think um, just quickly on Barbara Tuckman or Tuckman, um, yeah. you know how you know she's so good is the fact that she wrote that Guns of anyone else who wrote a war, World War One book when she wrote Guns of August, the book looks ridiculous now. Um, of, after mm. further scholarship, hers doesn't to me. Um, but we were actually going to hit you with a question about what you were working on next um, at the end of the show, but give it to us mm. now then. So it starts in 410. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, it's a book called Powers and Thrones. And it, it's, um, you could call it the Middle Ages. It's a, it's a big sweeping survey of the Middle Ages, the Western Middle Ages, right? And it begins uh, in 410 with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And it goes, and the sack of Rome in 410. And it goes through to another sack of Rome in 1527. And it really proceeds by saying, what, you know, what were the big, well, like my initial thought was, what are the, what, what were the big powers that controlled and built the West in the Middle Ages? Um, and powers and thrones have a nice cadence and ring to it. But as I'm working on it, the thrones, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be arranged. Each chapter will be like, well, the first one's, you know, Rome. The second one is barbarian migrations. The third one is um, Byzantium. The fourth one is the first Islamic caliphate. The fifth one is the Franks. You see what I mean? It's the big yeah. building block of Western history in the Middle Ages. It sounds but fabulous. The powers, well, it's going to be good because the, the powers, and I think it's going to be a sort of, it is a distant mirror type book in the sense that the powers really now are not, as I work on it, um, the Franks and the Romans and the Vikings or whatever. They're the thrones. The powers are like, I'm trying to investigate how things we're obsessed with now shape the medieval world. And the, the five sort of touch points are climate change, technological change, mass migration, global networks, and pandemic disease. Now, when I put those together, I thought pandemic disease is the weak link. As it turns out, it's not. Um, <laughs> 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 anyway, so, so it's sort of seeing the Middle Ages, instead of as a sort of religious and military narrative that just says, and then another king got pissed off with his neighbour or you know, decided to have a slightly variant form of Christianity slash Islam, and so it killed a bunch of people on horseback. It says, okay, how did, um, let's say in barbarian, the barbarian migrations, how did a sort of super drought on the, um, the Eastern steppe bring about the fall of the Western Roman Empire? And the, the link, of course, is the Huns migrating and, and pushing, moving the Goths and the Alans and the Vandals and so on. That's so um, smart. How um, sorry, I was just going to say that like, it would be so easy, wouldn't it, given a span like that to sort of go through like 
do take the easy way out in i would assume and do like uh through various monarchs and kings and different reigns and stuff but to actually tackle the stuff like the migrations and the pandemics and stuff it, it's just i think it sounds brilliant well the, the trick is to do the two you see and the trick is always triangulation um you know great political insight of the sort of Blair Clinton year. You triangulate and, or, or as Jay-Z used to put it, you've got to feed him sugar, right? You can't like, um, <laughs> you, can't, you, can't just, you can't just drop a load of like, I can't go from writing sort of Haru Hurrah, Plantagenet's Crusades books to, right guys, now there's a whole book full of tree ring data and, um, and stuff about sort of viral pandemic. Now, you've still got to have the sort of framework of epic storytelling, but it's, it's, you know, we're talking about kind of limiting um, factors on the storytelling and, and focal points within your, um, uh, within your research, which says, I'm just going to show you how the things that animate us animated the world then, but there'll still be people getting their heads chopped off and like funny stories about, um, you know, uh, people who had weird pets and uh, sent giraffes to each other. Like, you know, you, you have to do both. And that, yeah. that's the, the tricky balance in the book is to, is to make it kind of rip along whilst also having a kind of beating serious heart to it. And a lot of that comes in the architectural work you do at the beginning of the book, which is, you know, I could bore you for an hour or so about that. You know, if you want to talk about story architecture, I'll just say one thing. And you mentioned the, um, the hollow crown. And that was my favorite. That is still my favorite book that I wrote. I think because it was with that book that I kind of really started to get a handle on how you have, like how you have to build story to make a successful popular history book because the Wars of the Roses and the Rise of the Tudors is, is a fiendishly difficult topic. And I, I you know, they're very, van there are vanishingly few books that, that do anything but descend into a sort of morass of different earls of, um, you know, such and such and dukes of who knows where um, and become essentially genealogy. And it, it was like, okay, what, how do we arrange this story? What, are the, what is the sort of superstructure that's holding this story together that's going to make it feel like it works? And I, I, I drew a lot for that book, particularly on television storytelling architecture and still do. Um, I think that, you know, the shape, the tropes, the narrative structures of, of screen storytelling are so powerful and they're so ingrained in the way that people understand story that um, if you want people to actually read and respond to history books who aren't, you know, historians, who are people, you know, a lot of my readers come out of historical fiction. Um, I want to attract people who, who, who wouldn't normally read a history book because there are load, you know, loads of them out there. Um, you have to, meet the reader somewhere in the middle and you've got to accept that most people consume most of their stories these days through television and now you're episodes. now you're saying that actually i will say that you can completely see the evolution in your writing in between because i've read the plantagenets one after i read the hollow crown and you could see that yeah, it's sort of your evolution that that oh, it was a step backwards if you like not in a bad way but that you had really like completely raised the bar with the hollow crown um but we've been fangirling for way too long and it's really selfish because other people have no, been no, sent... carry on. Let's, let's more of <laughs> we've been sent, <laughs> sent questions by uh more people on twitter um i really like this one this came in from james powell who said we seem to go over the same stories a lot um what's the most 
most best so what's the best <laughs> or most important mm -hmm. untold story of the period between Hastings and Bosworth um I mean it's very hard to say what's the most important uh I, I, I can only say here's the the book I would love to write at some point um which is about the famous mayor of London, Dick Whittington. Is he um, real? Famous because, yeah, well, yeah, no, very real. Famous because he most often now turns up in pantomimes, right, with his cat and and probably a lot of sort of um, and breasts know, kind usually, of, right? Yes, yeah, sexual innuendo yeah. and and kind of whoopee cushion noises and and so on. And it's sad, really, because Whittington was, you know, a genuinely great man. Um, a sort of fairly obscure origins from the Cotswolds, uh, pictured, pictured up in London, apprenticed to, you know, to the sort of Mercer trade, so dealing in cloth, and over the, you know, survived five kings' reigns, um, running, let me get this right. So, uh, Edward III, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, he died in 1423. So he, he lived and worked through five kings' reigns, um, unaffected largely by the regime changes across 1399 and the, the turbulence before and afterwards. And that's the deposition of Richard II. Um, made a fantastic amount of money. I mean, so wealthy, it was unbelievable, but kept it all in cash rather than land. Didn't have any kids. So when he died in 1423, left his vast fortune to good works in the city of London. Um, almshouses, sewers, public toilets, um, you know, refuges for, uh, for, you know, women who'd fallen on hard times, like good shit. Um, and made so much money, in fact, that there are still people living today, or living Crawley now rather than London, because there was a, a, the Mercer Company did a, a, a property swap few decades ago there's still people living today in dick whittington houses you know and um, subsidized public housing that owes its foundation and its continuing um uh, operation to dick whittington the mayor richard whittington mayor of london four times in the 14th 15th century um so i i think his personal story is amazing and unknown in general and i think also that a, a view into the sort of um the big bang of the city during the Middle Ages, if you like, you know, forget the 1990s, the big bang of London in the high Middle Ages into this sort of global, globally connected um, mercantile powerhouse is, is, a, is a super interesting story. And I'd love to write it one day. Um, but there's loads of things I've worked wrong. Right one day. I'm actually really excited because I can add something right now. Oh, go but for it, yeah. Basically, um, it, long story cut short, so I teach English out here in Poland, yeah. and there's this great little programme that shows snippets of history for kids. And mm. funnily enough, they did one on Dick Whittington. So I got to teach my class about Dick Whittington and um, like this basic history about him, which is quite exciting, actually. That's awesome. That's so not like a great just, story. Add, yeah, it's I thought I'd add that in. So. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, <laughs> I th do you know what? I'll send you guys. I'll send you guys the link, or I'll post it on Twitter so people can see you know, if they're interested. But um, we've got another question from um, Brady. Um, he asks, "I'm curious about his thoughts. So your thoughts, obviously, 
on the legacy of, I'm going to say this completely wrong, please don't judge me, uh, Simon de Montfort? Simon de Montfort, yeah. Yeah. You're so not allowed to laugh at my Polish pronunciation ever again. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm really sorry. It's, this is so embarrassing. This is so embarrassing. It's okay. I'm going to keep going. So, your thoughts about the legacy of this dude? How do we reconcile his role in strengthening Parliament and increasing representation of? Do you know what? You should just stop me reading because I just I don't even know what half these words are. Burgesses. Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> with his well-documented persecution of Jews and anti-Semitic acts. Um, yeah, I hear you. But I just don't think that um, you reconciling them is a is a worthwhile pastime, and it's not particularly historical, is it? I mean, you can you can Sophie Ambler's book about Simon de Montfort is brilliant for anyone who's interested in the topic, and she she's got him perfectly. I think it's called The Song of Simon de Montfort. Came out last year or year before last year i think and um but i think the answer is you, you just there is no need to reconcile you know you just have to see that here is somebody who was uh instrumental in some ways in um the development of parliament and in a limited sense parliamentary democracy and he was someone who was also a product of his fairly beastly by our standards times um which were rampantly anti-semitic i mean it's just who he was <clears throat> and i don't think that you need to um reconcile unless you're sort of addicted to putting people into boxes that say either hero or villain um but if you are then that's you know it's gonna make history quite difficult um let's move on to oh this is my mum again my mum absolutely screwed me with one of her questions um but the, her one for you is nice so she says her favorite book um is the hollow crown um which one did you have the most fun writing um which you've kind of answered but she also she wants to know who's the best villain you've come across best i suppose and most entertaining i think she means the best villain um gosh that's quite a good one i mean there's a, there was a lot in crusaders that i I, I really uh, enjoyed. Actually, no, I tell you, the, be the best villain, in a way, is Philip IV, who's the sort of ultimate villain of um, the Templar story. Uh, you know, responsible ultimately for the downfall of the Templars in 1307 through 1312. Um, because he's, you know, he's straight out of uh, villain central casting, sort of handsome, uh, psychopathic. Uh, completely unreasonable, um, just the, the most grim and uh, and dedicatedly, if that's a word, uh, nasty piece of work that you'll ever come across, who um, repeatedly and uh, without compunction, you know, fucks numerous groups within his kingdom as hard as he possibly can, uh, starting with the church uh, running through the Jews and ending up with the Templars uh, and taking a detour along the way to a couple of his sons-in-law who he rightly or wrongly suspects of having affairs. You know, it's it, he is a totally um, brutal, beastly character, absolutely made for the screen. Um, so I, I think I'd go with uh, Philip IV, Philip the Fair, Philip the Bell, King of France. Sounds like a reasonable answer. <laughs> so I've got a question from Bradley Baker. Any more books on the monarchy in the queue? Any more books on the monarchy in the queue? 
Well, Pounds and Thrones is the next book. Actually, no, the next book is, uh, I've got another book with Marina Amaral, my uh, collaborator from Brazil. She's great. And so we've got a book called The World of Flame, where I'm treading into your territory, First and Second World War. That's coming out in early May, assuming the publishing industry hasn't collapsed by then. Then I've got Powers and Thrones. Then I'm writing three novels. Uh, and I've got a couple of TV scripted things I'm developing as well, which are slow burn, like all of it. So I've got a lot on my plate until 2024, really. 23, maybe. Um, I haven't... I, there is a gap between Plantagenets and Wars of the Roses. There's a deliberate gap, which is Henry V shaped. Um, because Plantagenets finishes in 1399 and um, Hollow Crown starts in with Henry V's marriage. Um, but effectively, it starts with Henry V's death in the early 1420s. And so there is a deliberate gap between those two books uh, that I may one day fill with something on Henry V. But that's, you know, that's now quite a long way down, down the line, I'm afraid. So you're so, working on loads. Um, Crusaders, um, if people want, want a Dan Jones fix now, Crusaders is the latest sort of, uh, as you did, like epic that you've written. Um, again, I don't know how you got all four into one book and made it flow like that. Um, tell us a bit about um, Crusaders and why people should go and buy it. Well, Crusaders is, um, there's the endless books about the Crusades, but this one tells the story through the eyes of people who are involved. It's, 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 um, it's highly focused personal stories, mixing up the characters I've cast in it from, you know, it's not just, you know, white guys with swords, it's not just Richard the Lionheart. This is Latin Christians, Greek Christians, Syrian Christians, Armenians, Jewish people, Sunni and Shia, Muslim, Turks, Kurds, uh, Arabs, uh, Bedouin, you know, the, the, the whole gamut. And it, it crosses you know, dozens of time zones, if you like. You, you go from the Mongols in the East to the Irish in the West. Uh, it's this sort of overflowing kind of um, pool of mad, bad and dangerous to know people. And it's just, it was a riot to write. I wrote very far. I wrote the text in eight months. Um, and it was just so intense and so much fun. And I think that sort of, that, that fizzing kind of joy in the storytelling, like I can, I'm starting to get a sort of handle on the book now, it's out in paperback, you know, you, you start to sort of be able to take a reasonable view of whether it was a success or a sort of miserable failure. And I just, I just really like it. it, it it's, um, I felt like I was sort of in a real groove with telling this story about the Crusades in a totally different way. And I think it hangs together. I think it works. They're fun stories. I had fun writing them and I still have fun reading them. So I hope people will go and buy it, except they can't go and buy it because the world's shut. Yeah. And even like Amazon Prime now constitutes, we may get to you in the next two and a half weeks, even though we're still taking your money. Uh, yeah, like slightly fuck them. I think um, order it from Waterstones or your local indie. Yeah, support your local bookstore because otherwise it won't be a local bookstore. I believe if you're panic buying in Tesco, I think it might be going to Tesco. So um, ideally, if you go in and panic buy, just sweep them all off the shelf, like elbow an old person out of the way, uh, tell them you're going to breathe on them because uh, you want every copy of the in the shop. Go so as, as someone who works in PR, how badly do you want to yeah. uh, up your sale count? because you could feasibly link the lack of toilet paper with the paperback edition, as long as they then go and buy a lovely hardback edition to keep on their shelf, obviously, in respect and love. 
any format they want to buy it awesome. wipe whatever orifice they like with it <laughs> no i can't wait to read it it's on it, i've actually got it. it it's on a pile along with everything else i wish i could read that wasn't about edward the eighth well one day when you've got time on your hands right um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on and talking to us. Uh, it's been, it's been epic. This has been Dan Jones, uh, Britain's edgiest historian. Which we did. We kind of decide that it's a, quite a low bar, and it might be because you say "fuck" and wore a leather jacket once. Could be. I mean, I do know some other historians who've done that. It's just maybe they haven't um, been recorded doing it. And as history shows us, that's the only way to be remembered. Anyway, edgy or not, you are fantastic. Your books are great. Can't wait to read the next one that comes out um, and to get to Crusaders on my path. Thanks very much, Dan. Say hi to Mary Beard. Don't no, we will. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, so tomorrow we are going to kick off week two in style. We brought you some uh, World War II in Europe last week, um, and we're going to take you to the Pacific tomorrow with the absolutely lovely Saul David, who is um, just releasing a fantastic new book called Crucible of Hell, which is about Okinawa and the last great battle of the Second World War. So tune in tomorrow for that. Um, until then, stay safe. Of course, absolutely, when you can, stay indoors. And this is Nighthawk signing off. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.